his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Welcome to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. There's a phrase that's used to describe the current fight against Islamic extremist forces, squeezing the balloon. Pressure al-Qaeda or the Islamic State in one area, they pop up in another. That's been the case over the past two decades, and despite big blows to al-Qaeda in the form of Osama bin Laden's death, or the Islamic State and the loss of most of the territory gained four years ago across Iraq and Syria, both groups remain strong. To get a better understanding of where these groups currently stand, we turn to Colin P. Clark, a senior fellow in the Program on National Security at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, where he focuses on terrorism, insurgency, and criminal networks. Dr. Clark has also co-authored a paper called Mapping Today's Jihadi Landscape and Threat. Colin, thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. There is a big difference between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and you've referred to it as the bipolar nature of global jihad. Uh, Could you describe the differences in those two groups' aims and strategies? Yeah, so I think the main uh, difference to be aware of is that the Islamic State was willing to establish a caliphate uh, in the immediate term, which they did when they declared one uh, in in 2014. Uh, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, who was Baghdadi's uh, deputy, declared one. And al-Qaeda always saw this as more of a long-term objective or goal uh, once it had the widespread support of the Arab and Islamic world. Uh, And so that led to a big falling out between the two groups, which frankly still manifests itself uh, very much today. How has the Arab Spring influenced these two groups over the past seven years? Has one side benefited more than the other? ISIS obviously has come to mind over the past couple of years. Sure. Well, I think one thing, I'd say that the global jihadist movement writ large has been a major beneficiary of the Arab Spring, uh, because at least to them, it's confirmed the narrative uh, that democracy does not work, right? And that only through Sharia governance uh, can the Islamic uh, nation actually establish a stable and fundamental state. Uh, Frankly, in the eyes of ISIS, what they did in their state-building project from 2014 to 2016 uh, was a major success, even though Raqqa, Mosul, uh, and their other territories have been taken away. The fact that they were actually ever able to establish it was a success in and of itself, and they'll continue to call back on that uh, in a lot of their propaganda and in their, their media operations. The Islamic State was given up for dead after losing most of its territory that it conquered in 2014. But we've seen many reports showing that the group is rebuilding along the region in Iraq and Syria in the Euphrates River Valley. How has it prepared for this stage? And what's its next goal? Is it going to try and reclaim and, and, and begin another caliphate as it did the first time around? Well, I see the group moving from a more kind of uh, territorial-based insurgency to a clandestine terrorist group uh, that acts covertly, uh, that recruits 
that uh, attempts to scrounge together resources and finances. Uh, and, and ISIS has done well to prepare for that. Uh, so this group has widely been referred to as the largest group or the, the wealthiest group uh, in, in history, and, and by and large that's true. Um, at one point they had a GDP of uh, $6 billion per year. Uh, so that's more than enough for a rainy day fund, uh, you know, stashed away uh, throughout different pockets of favorable territory. So I, I would expect this group to make uh, some kind of a comeback. You know, will it ever get back to uh, the state that it was, uh, you know, at its peak? Mm, probably not, at least perhaps not in Iraq and Syria, but we could see movement elsewhere. Um, it's actually the, the subject of a book that I'm finishing right now for Polity Press uh, called After the Caliphate, which is kind of exploring and dissecting some of the, the potential landing spots uh, for foreign fighters and for the remnants of the Islamic State that remain alive today. And we're going to get more into uh, where the jihadi movement is showing up now and its future. want to touch on al-Qaeda first. Al-Qaeda took some big hits, obviously the death of Osama bin Laden. It seemed to take a backseat to the Islamic State when ISIS went on its uh, large swath of grabbing territory in in Syria and Iraq. Uh, Where is al-Qaeda today? How strong are they compared to where they were, say, a decade ago? So if you believe Bruce Hoffman, uh, legendary terrorism expert, and, and I do believe Bruce, um, because he's one of the best in the business uh, at, at studying and, and analyzing terrorist groups. He says that al-Qaeda is quietly and patiently rebuilding, and that largely tracks with my own analysis. So this is a group that has used the Islamic State uh, as a foil, so uh, letting ISIS take the brunt of coalition operations uh, while al-Qaeda itself flies a little bit under the radar. Uh, it has reached out to local communities uh, and has attached itself almost like a parasite to these local communities and parroted their grievances in places like Syria, in places like Yemen, uh, and elsewhere. And so, uh, you know, for for al-Qaeda, it was a double-edged sword, uh, the rise of the Islamic State. In, in one way, it was a challenge to their legitimacy, but in the other way, it took a lot of heat off of al-Qaeda and allowed it to kind of rest, rearm, recuperate, uh, and, and plan its next uh, stage or, or phase. Let's talk about the main factors that are shaping the global jihad movement, and, and you point out four different key factors. Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have achieved a lot over the past couple of decades, but they've also had so many failures, yet there is still this large ideological appeal of jihadism. Can you explain that? How, how do they succeed in getting new recruits? Well, part of it for the Islamic State has been the sophisticated nature of their social media operations, uh, and they've followed a kitchen sink approach, is kind of what I've termed it. Uh, while al-Qaeda tends to be a bit more selective in who it recruits and who it targets, um, IS is a come one, come all. You don't necessarily have to have an intimate knowledge of Islam uh, as long as you're willing to commit extreme acts uh, in the name of Baghdadi and the group uh, more generally, then you're welcome. And we've seen this be successful uh, in the group's call to individuals in the West to commit attacks in its name, uh, most recently with the trend in vehicular terrorism. So the group specifically appealed for people to jump in cars and and mow down so-called infidels, uh, and we've seen dozens of individuals in the West actually do so. How does the global jihadi movement's decentralized nature help it succeed and grow into the future? So the you know the term is a bit hackneyed and cliched, but I think it's apt in many cases, and that's whack-a-mole. Uh, when you know counterterrorism forces hit them in one place, they simply pop up elsewhere. 
this isn't a centralized, vertically structured hierarchy that if you take out the leader, the rest of, uh, you know, the institution crumbles. This is a, a very dispersed, uh, very networked kind of protean, highly adaptive adversary. Um, and it ebbs and flows in, in different territories. It latches on to local grievances and exploits them. Um, and, and so this is something that, uh, you know, is an enemy we're going to be battling for well over the next decade. And there's also the adaptability of these groups. It, it seems like they can find so many different situations and, and use them to their favor. Uh, how does that help in, in their strategy going forward as well? Yeah, no question. These are learning organizations. Um, you know, in the United States, uh, when, when we talk about uh, with the military lessons learned and best practices, oftentimes these are things we record and never look at again. Uh, these groups, by their, you know, their nature, are forced to learn from their mistakes, and they're forced to become learning organizations in order to survive. Uh, so it's a necessary part of their, their evolution. And, um, you know, we, we've seen that over time as the group has learned uh, to conduct better operation security. It's learned how to recruit. It's learned how to uh, acquire new skills with detonating various types of impro improvised explosive devices or handle new weapon systems. Uh, and so, you know, the, the Darwinian nature of the counterterrorism fight uh, in, in some ways is responsible for this, right? Because we've, we've killed off uh, you know, so many of these individuals uh, and, and defeated so many of these groups. So the strongest ones remain and survive. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. We're joined by Colin P. Clark, senior political scientist with the Rand Corporation and co-author of Mapping Today's Jihadi Landscape and Threat. There tends to be this thought that uh, coalition forces such as the U.S. have such a technological advantage over these groups, but we are seeing more technology pop up with Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, uh, whether it's a move into drones, unmanned aerial systems, artificial intelligence. Uh, how big of a threat is this for the rest of the world that these groups are gaining more of a technological edge? I think it's a major threat. Um, think about the recent drone attack in Venezuela, the, the assassination attempt against Nicolas Maduro. Uh, you could simply affix a crude explosive, and in, in that instance it was a C4 plastic explosive, to a hobby shop drone, uh, what we call commercial off-the-shelf technology that can be had for anywhere between 500 and a few thousand dollars, uh, and, and learn how to fly that. That, that could be a conspiracy of one, one individual. And I think in the future, uh, as drone traffic becomes uh, ubiquitous with, you know, whether it's Amazon delivering packages by drone, uh, some people speculate in the next three to five years we'll be getting regular pizza deliveries by drone, right? That could provide cover and concealment for people with more nefarious intentions to put their drone up in the sky. Um, and, and even if it's not about attacking necessarily, they could be conducting uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance type activities in preparation for uh, foreign attacks. So very, very troubling in my mind, because as we've seen with cyber and a lot of other technologies, the technology itself always far outpaces the laws, the authorities and the policies needed to govern them. We tend to think of this as a two group area with the Islamic State and Al Qaeda. Will that continue to be the case? Will will they somehow exist 
with each other, or will one simply uh, triumph over the other, or will we see even more of these jihadist parties come to the movement in the future? Yeah, it, you know, it's really hard to say, right? I gave up making predictions about the Middle East a long time ago because it's somewhat of a fool's errand. Uh, but in many ways, you know, there's several possibilities. Uh, there's the possibility of rapprochement down down the line, where there's a, a marriage of convenience. Uh, that these groups need to come together in order to to survive. Uh, my own take is that they're going to continue to to be adversaries, and they're going to compete for recruits, and they're going to try to swallow up smaller groups uh, across the globe in in various jihadi hotspots, from Libya to Afghanistan to the Philippines um, and elsewhere. And so I think um, you know the nightmare scenario is that uh, it, it's what some scholars call outbidding. The groups try to ratchet up. The, uh, the level of intensity uh, and outdo one another in order to prove to fence, so-called fence-sitters, people you know, that are deciding which group to support, that they're the top dog, they're the group to follow. And you know, in my mind, the way to do that would be to try to pull off some kind of chemical or biological attack uh, in the West. And so that's really, I think it's a, a small percentage uh, you know, that, that, that happens, but the consequences would be uh, disastrous. We've been wondering when we would see more of this take place in Europe. Uh, there is a, a lot of sociopolitical disenfranchisement throughout Western Europe, whether it's the UK, France, Germany. Uh, a lot of Muslim refugees are now living there, and there, there's an issue of integrating them into those societies. Uh, are these the obvious targets for the global jihadi movement, and, and where do you see that going in the coming decade? Yeah, I think that, you know those people uh, that that actually didn't leave and depart for the caliphate. Um, but something else, and I've I've written about this, and I should I should also before we go on give a plug to my co-author Asaf Magadou, uh, who's who's one of the leading scholars in this area. Um, he he wrote this the the mapping the jihadi landscape article with me, and um, one of the things that we talk about is you know the the people the the foreign fighters that left Europe and went over, fought and died in Syria and Iraq, you know. Many of these people have younger brothers or younger siblings, or they're now lionized and looked up to as martyrs in the neighborhoods that they come from. So what about those younger generations, you know, the 10- and 12-year-olds who grew up to become teenagers and similarly disenfranchised young adults? Do they then seek to carry on the jihad uh, by either conducting attacks in the areas that they're from, in France and the U.K., or do they then go abroad like similar generations have or previous generations have in search of the kind of next caliphate, whether that's in Libya, you know, uh, other parts of North Africa uh, or parts of South Asia. We've seen a rise in anti-immigration policies throughout Europe, elsewhere in the world, uh, populist politics. Uh, how does this play into the role of the global jihadi movement? Oh, I think without question, it fuels the movement um, and it gives uh, it, it plays right into the jihadi narrative, right, that the West is against you. Um, and even though this is a very small percentage of people um, that are engaging in this type of rhetoric, um, it, it's still the optics are terrible, right? Um, and we've seen this playing out in Germany and elsewhere with the arrival of large numbers of refugees and then the kind of uh, pendulum swing back to right-wing populism and uh, nativist groups that are targeting uh, immigrants. And look, social media has a lot to do with this, right, because there's false information flowing um, both ways, inciting people. And so I think, you know, it's really the perfect storm to, to perpetuate 
uh, this struggle, rather than kind of let the embers fade away, uh, in many ways it's actually contributed to a continuation of the status quo. We always hear about winning the hearts and minds, and it, it seems like there there's a struggle from both sides in this case, whether it's the jihadist movement or various countries trying to win over uh, new immigrants into their own society. Uh, and it, it's called a gray zone. Uh, and how is the jihadist movement trying to remove that gray zone by forcing Muslims to choose between the West or the jihadis? Yeah, because it's painted as a binary um, equation, right? So it's either, um, in many ways, the rhetoric that we've played into, that you're either with them or against us. Um, and so things like the Burqa ban in France, um, you know, issues like that, that reach such a high level that al-Qaeda's current leader and, and former deputy Ahmed al-Zawahiri feel the need to comment on it. And I think because they get a lot of traction out of things like that, um, essentially, quote-unquote, proving to uh, to uh, Muslims that feel that they're under siege that, yes, look, this narrative is true. Uh, the West is against you, and you'll never be truly welcome, and you actually aren't a citizen, uh, and so you should do everything to fight back. The West has spent a lot of uh, treasury and blood on fighting terrorism. How difficult of a challenge is this right now? And what are the pitfalls for the West and elsewhere in fighting the global jihadi movement? So I don't want to be an alarmist, um, because I, as we talk about in the article, I don't think this is an existential threat on the order of, you know, uh, great power rivalries or nuclear warfare. But at the same time, uh, you know, 9-11 proves that these groups can retain the capabilities to conduct large-scale spectacular attacks that can lead to um, significant lethalities, right? Especially when left unchecked, uh, as the Islamic State was for several years between 2011 and 2014, uh, even kind of creeping into 2015, these groups, when left to metastasize, uh, can really grow into a quite a formidable and significant threat, not only to the areas where uh, the, you know they control territory, but outside of those areas. I mean, if you look at the Paris November 2015 attack, Brussels uh, March 2016 attack, and other kind of external operations conducted by the Islamic State, this is a group with global reach, and so I think we need to keep that in mind. How key is it for these groups in, in trying to draw in other nations into civil conflicts? Yeah, that's part of the, the strategy is to conduct an attack and get other nations sucked in and to overreact. I mean, that's very much part and parcel um, of, of these groups' modus operandi. Um, and look, if you, if you look at the historical record, they've been pretty successful in doing that. Um, and so uh, that's, again, one of my concerns with some kind of a WMD-style attack that, you know, even if it only kills a handful of people, uh, the psychological trauma that it inflicts and the overreaction that it then engenders um, is going to help these groups achieve exactly what they're hoping to. The West is able to use incredible military might in these instances. Uh, how much should they focus on that versus uh, more of a softer approach working with those communities that feel uh, that they've got grievances and it turns into radicalization and joining the jihadi movement? Well, you know, I, I think it's both, right? I think it's a comprehensive approach that's ultimately going to be successful. But you referenced the West military might, and I'd argue that, it, you know, it's much greater on paper than it is in practice. Just take the United States. Most people would argue that the United States is the world's strongest military, um, and, and, and that's true if you look back historically, right? This is the strongest, most capable military that the world has ever seen. Yet 17 years into Afghanistan, the United States is unable to defeat the Taliban, which is an insurgent group, um, you know, ill-equipped, ill-trained, um, you know, 
operating with tacit uh, assistance of uh, an intelligence service across the border. So, you know, if the if the world's strongest superpower can't defeat an insurgency, what good is all this military might? Well, that is an excellent point right there. As the world evolves, so do the threats. We've been joined by Colin P. Clark, senior political scientist with the Rand Corporation and co-author of Mapping Today's Jihadi Landscape and Threat. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.